0: The Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Greys Inn Students. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this podcast, which is being organised by the Education Department of Greys Inn and the Association of Greys Inn Students. And it's about parenting at the bar, having caring responsibilities at the bar and going to the bar late in life. My name is Mary Pryor, Queen's Counsel, and I'm delighted this evening to be having a conversation with three people who've done just that. They are Georgina Barney, Meridoc McGinn and Charlotte Bull. Before we come to them, you might wonder why it is that I'm here holding this session. Well, I fit at least two, and probably three, of those categories. I went to the bar in 1990, having spent six years working as a magistrate's court clerk. I've been at the bar for 30 years, and I have five sons, and during that period of time, I've also had to care for elderly and sick relatives. So that's my background. Let me give you a very brief outline of our three guests. Georgina, before she came to the bar, had a very successful career in arts and education. She currently works as a legal assistant for a very well-renowned firm, Brown-Jacobson PLC. She has a three-year-old and as well as working full-time, she's studying for the GDL part-time distance learning. We're very glad she's a member of Grey's Inn, and she has a scholarship from Grey's Inn to complete her GDL and a scholarship from Nottingham Trent University. Welcome, Georgina. Thank you. Uh, Meredith McGinn, who was called in 2015 and practices from Garden Court Chambers in London, had a hugely successful career with the United Nations, working there for over 12 years In very senior positions and dealing with really important things such as refugee returns, humanitarian affairs, and post conflict stabilisation in the Balkans. He's a criminal defence barrister and has a very busy practice, specifically dealing with vulnerable clients and youths and a three and three quarters year old son. Welcome, Meredith.
1: Thank you. and get, Thank you for getting the three and three quarters right. <laughs> it's very important, isn't it? <laughs> it is to a three-year-old, yes. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and Charlotte Bull was called in 2016. She works at Goldsmith Chambers in crime, civil and regulatory law. She prosecutes and defends. And prior to coming to the bar, had a hugely successful practice in the charity sector, She provided advice on criminal justice and civil law matters to veterans and to individuals with serious mental health conditions. Uh, We're really grateful to Charlotte for being here this evening because not only does she have a 21-month-old son, but she has a four-week-old daughter. So many congratulations to you, Charlotte, and welcome. Thank you very much. Really pleased to be here. So we've all had a first career, had a second career and seemingly are able to manage it with families and you will know that one of the reasons behind this podcast is because many people are considering a change of career to a career at the bar but are also daunted by the prospect of doing so and daunted by the prospect of having children and Charlotte there's a theme, isn't there, that students say now and again, and they keep repeating it, which is, how do you manage to have a career at the bar with children? How do you balance family and work life? What would you say to that?
2: I'd say that it's a very good question and to be honest it's one that um, obviously with a very young family myself I continue to grapple with <laughs> and some days are definitely more successful than others but what I've found is that with the right support uh, the right childcare, and I think a realistic approach to your practice It is possible to balance the needs of a young family and a fledgling career at the bar. Um, It's just something that takes continual balance and reflection.
0: Do you have to be quite firm sometimes with your clerk if they're trying to send you to somewhere which is simply not practical when you have a small family?
2: Yes, you do. And I think that's one of the most important things if you are a barrister with a young family, is being very clear with yourself and with your clerks about what you can and can't do. Clerks love you to be in court every day and to be able to fling you to various parts of the country. But really what is important to a good clerk is to know what your practice needs are, what your expectations are, and for you to communicate those clearly with your clerk so that they know what you need and you can tell them, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. And good clerks at good chambers are able to manage the practices of their barristers and to make sure that those things can all work together so that you can have the practice you want and the practice you need with family commitments, but also meet the needs of your children.
0: And Meridoc, have you had to have a similar conversation with your clerks about where you practice and what sort of hours you can work?
1: Yes, I think for me, there's been um, three approaches I've taken. Um, One of them is to sort of focus my practice a little bit. And I've asked to take on a lot of fraud cases, because that's an area I'm interested in. And I also do a lot of um, drug cases. So there's become a little bit of a specialization. And I think I have to, to be realistic about how much I can take on so i think it's a combination of um having a limited amount of time because i have a family and also the fact it's a second career i mean you know i'm older (laughs) so i I don't necessarily try to do you know the breadth of all casework. i think that's that's assisted and the clerks have responded by sort of focusing my practice a bit the other one is that um it kind of goes both ways so if i'm asking for flexibility from them i also have to be flexible sometimes, and I might have to, you know, go to Ipswich for a case, which is a bit of a trek. But I drive, so I don't mind doing it. So there's sort of that give and take. And I think, lastly, if you if you have something more significant that's sort of interrupting your practice, then you, you should make it clear to chambers. So earlier in the year, or last year, um, I had a somebody in my broader family who had quite a serious health issue, which has helpfully resolved itself. But I had to spend a lot, of, pay a lot of attention to that for a few months. So I spoke to my chamber's manager and I explained that because I get along quite well with her. And she sort of talked to the clerks on my behalf and said, you know, you're going to have to ease off on Murdoch for a few months. So, you know, you just take a practical approach to it to try and resolve some the issues that arise.
0: Now, Georgina, you've been listening to that and obviously you're working your way through your studies at the moment to becoming a barrister because you're doing the GDL. Yes, that's right. Does that give you some sort of comfort that with proper structures in place and proper conversations, um, you can see people having a successful career at the bar with children? Yes, of course. It's always helpful to hear
3: positive and affirming stories of how people do combine those parts of their life. I'm grappling with similar but different issues in my situation. As you said, I'm progressing. I'm hoping to qualify um, as a barrister. I'm not there yet and I'm some way off. I'm at an early stage of my studies. So yes, I work, I actually work a 0.7 contract, which is three and a half days alongside the part-time GDL, which I think the guidance is 15 hours a week. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to squeeze that all in with also being a parent. And one of the struggles I've been thinking about is the question that's come up a lot when I've been attending various online open days when people are saying, you know, how do I improve my CV? And and you're told do mooting, do mini pupillages, and it's very, very challenging to fit anything extra into my timetable at the moment. So that was, you know, one of the things that has prompted me to approach Grays In and, and ask if we could have a bigger conversation about these sorts of topics.
0: Mm. That's a really good point, actually, isn't it, Georgina? Because already you're working flat out. You have your job. You're doing a brand new course in law because your previous career was quite different. And you have a a three-year-old. And we all know, those of us who've had children, what a great joy a three-year-old is and how exhausting a three-year-old is. But what you really want to know is how, when you have all of those obligations, can you demonstrate an interest in being a barrister by doing mini pupillages, shadowing work experience? That's that's really the nub of it, Georgina, isn't it?
3: Yes, yes, um, I, I think so. I think recently I've had, over Christmas in particular, I've been reflecting a lot upon, you know, my own sort of well-being and what I can expect. I think the other speakers have mentioned having realistic expectations mm. and I think moderating and being confident in my own intuition about what I can do next um, what the next steps are within my own circumstances and also realizing in what ways I am already kind of ticking those CV type boxes mm. and not necessarily feeling I have to um, fulfill every piece of advice um, and have a sort of sparkling CV but that you know, trusting in the vocation and in the, you know, the fact of having scholarships and so on, that I will get there, I suppose.
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the very first thing that I would say to you is that you are plainly achieving all of that because you obtained a Gray's Inn scholarship. And Gray's scholarships are reserved for those that the, um, very talented people at Gray's Inn who make these determinations believe will have a successful career at the bar. And that's really at the forefront of those marking scholarship applications, um, interviewing potential scholars' minds. So that, I think, would give you confidence more than anything else. But the other thing that uh, I think I should say before I ask the other speaker's about it is is this looking at your cv it does appear to me to be stellar because you are having work experience legal experience every day and you're showing lots of skills that you are required to do as a member of the bar at drive and determination time management not flapping at challenges uh, negotiation skills uh, advocacy all of these things Sometimes people think that work experience is absolutely vital in terms of mini pupillages and so on. But it can look a little bit like Blue Peter badges and what the scholarship and uh, INS are interested in is actually what you're doing with your time and what you're learning. Charlotte, what would you say to Georgina about trying to have a stellar CV?
2: I would say I found myself uh, in a similar position to Georgina, actually, when I was applying first for my grades in scholarship and then also uh, latterly for pupillage in that, although I did a, a law degree at the University of Birmingham, I then went off and did other things. So I worked in The Hague, I worked in Brussels, and then I worked uh, full-time in the charity sector and did the bar course part-time. And I found that it was very difficult for me to fit in mini pupilages. And of course, when I was abroad, it was impossible. And when I came back to London, it was almost equally impossible, because I, all my time was taken up either working a full working day, or in the evenings. I was then doing my bar course. But I would echo what what you've said, Mary, in that the most important thing really is to reflect on your own work experience. Because that, in my situation, and I'm sure in yours, Georgina, is actually giving you those real life examples of why you would be a good barrister. So in my situation, I was able to evidence advocacy, not through mooting, but through uh, the tribunal representation I did for veterans. And I was able to demonstrate time management skills and people skills through the managerial role that I fulfilled at a mental health charity when I worked there. And I think that mini pupilages are important um, and they're, they're great if you can do uh, a few of them, but they're not the be all and end all. Uh, I do sit on the interview panel for uh, my chambers, and whilst we want to see that someone really understands what it is to be a barrister and has reflected and thought on what being a barrister uh, means, that doesn't have to come through a mini-pupillage. It can come through other experiences. What I'd also say, and it's something we do in my chambers, is offer mini-pupillages that aren't a full week. So that was one of the problems that I had was that if I was going to do a mini pupillage, I was going to need to take annual leave, which is obviously sacred, especially when you're working full time. Um, but ask the chambers, actually, can I come in for a, two days or a day? It's maybe trying to be more flexible, having that quality time with someone one on one for a day in court it may actually be all you really need. Um, if it can be a really good, interesting case where you get the chance to discuss it with a barrister, try and see if you can find mini pupils or ask Chambers to be flexible um, and get those experiences like that. But I, w- I would say that if you've got a scholarship um, from Grey's Inn, and I was lucky enough to receive one myself, that that is a, is a really great marker of... Um, future success i think that the scholarship committees generally know what they're looking for and certainly they were able to look past the gaps as i suppose they were in my cv and see actually she has the the skills um, and that they come from perhaps non-traditional areas and there's nothing wrong with that and in fact chambers such as my chambers uh, do look for those things alongside the
0: more traditional you know five or six mini-pupillages That's a really great contribution, Charlotte. Thank you very much. Just thinking about going on to look for pupillage and the pressure that everyone feels about it, because we always hear, don't we, how very difficult it is to get pupillage. And lots of mature students, particularly those who are in their second career, wonder whether Chambers will want them at all because they don't have so many years available to work. Was that something that you thought about, Meridoc?
1: Yes, I mean, I, there's a lot of concerns I had when I was um, applying for pupillage. But in the end, that these are factors that you can't really control. So my sort of approach is, you know, I know it sounds a bit trite, but you know, do the best you can, focus on the strengths you have, and if you if there is a chambers that has that concern, you're not going to change their mind. But there'll be lots of other chambers that don't have that concern, or that will look at the other benefits you can bring by being in, you know, someone older, maybe and coming with more experience. So for example, when it comes to advocacy and negotiation, in my last job, I did a lot of that. So it was sort of a background that I had. And I also found that when I actually got people to my second six, I was doing quite well in court. And I think one of the reasons is because the environment didn't really intimidate me. Whereas I think for maybe younger counsel, it was a bit It took them aback to be in front of a Crown Court judge and so forth. But I think one of the benefits I have of being a bit older and coming to the bar is I had a bit of perspective on that. So, you know, it swings in roundabouts. There were some chambers that a couple that did say, you know, we're not as interested in you because we don't have time to develop you as counsel. But um, other chambers were interested in my previous experience. So I think it kind of goes both ways.
0: And what do you think that you were most frightened about or most worried about when you were putting yourself forward for pupillage? What was that sort of thing that kept whispering in your head?
1: I mean, I had, I guess, the broad and the specific, the broader one is I have a family. So realistically, (laughs) I need to have a job. So there was sort of that aspect to it. It wasn't just me looking after myself. I have a mortgage to pay. I have a family to look after. So or at that time, I didn't, but I was soon to have. So there was that sort of broader concern. And I think that's a pressure that maybe, you know, people who are younger don't have because you have the you can afford a couple of years of maybe bartending or doing something that paralegaling that doesn't pay so well. And specifically, and maybe this is a difficulty a bit specific to my situation. I'd been abroad for 12 years and I resigned from the UN at the beginning of 2013 and I came back and went right into um, the conversion program. So I had a bit of a hard time adjusting to to life in the UK, to be frank, and I found it a bit. I, I had a bit of a time getting to the rhythm of how things work here and um, culturally and so forth. So I found that a little difficult. So I guess how I came across in interviews is a bit of a concern because there's a certain way of practice in the U.N. It's not similar to maybe how the bar works, but in the end, you just adapt. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it worked out. It just you know I means trial and error, really. And the one thing I would say to everybody is that you will make mistakes. Things will go wrong for you. But you just have to keep at it. There's just no other way around it. If you really want to do this job, persevere.
0: Mary doctor. just following on from that, did you receive rejections when you were applying for pupillage?
1: I'm trying to think. I applied for two years in a row. The first year I, I had um, two, I did, I think, 20, 25 applications, everything on the gateway and an equal number outside the gateway. And I had two interviews and neither of them offered me pupillage. In the second year, I did another 25 applications and I think I got eight or nine interviews. So I did much better in the number of interviews I received and I got two offers of pupillage. So again, I think it was just practice. But one thing that was helpful, I got a little advice from my teacher in the BPTC. I had applied to all what I call the supersets and everyone of course has their own definition of you know what they think is a superset. Mm-hmm. But I had put all my supersets down. And he said to me, he said, Murdoch, you're a good student, but you're not that good. And he said, you've (laughs) got to be more, he said, be more realistic, apply to a chambers that you might actually get into. So the next year I did that. And of course, I, you know, still put two or three supersets in, but um, in the end, you know, I was more realistic about it. And I think that was really useful advice because in the end, you just need to get in. I wouldn't be too concerned about which chambers you get into, just get into the bar.
0: Well, when I applied to go to the bar itself, I think I wrote to almost every set that there was. It wasn't pupillage because I'd done sponsored pupillage. But no one would have me except for one very small set in Wolverhampton. Um, They gave me a chance. And here I am now, 30 years later, with a very successful career. So I I agree with you, Meredith. You, You only need one chance. Charlotte, what were you worried about when you were applying for pupillage? What was niggling away in your mind about your chances of success?
2: I think my principal concern was the fact that I was coming later. So I was worried that the fact that I'd done a law degree, but then basically sat on it for my whole 20s, would play against me. And that I would look perhaps... I remember someone telling me in feedback that... My CV made me look insufficiently committed to legal practice because I had done this law degree, done a master's and then gone off and done different things. And that really worried me. The fact that I hadn't gone straight from, um, you know, the the traditional path uh, was really going to count against me. And it didn't.
0: So Georgina, you've been listening there to Charlotte and to Meridoc explaining what their fears were when they applied for pupillage and in fact received offers of pupillage. Do you have similar fears and worries when it comes to your turn? I mean, everybody has,
3: you know, their their issues and everything can, you know, most things can be seen, as Meridoc said, as a positive or a negative, really. And I think it's really important to keep reminding yourself of why you're doing what you're doing and, and of the positive things behind you, but obviously to keep sort of reflecting critically. I suppose, you know, it's just terrifyingly competitive out there. And whenever you attend any kind of careers advice, that's what you keep being reminded of. And whilst I feel confident in my experience and commitment and motivation. You know, as I've said, I, I, won't, I can't fit in mooting, although I'm hoping to do some advocacy for uh, my firm at some point. But I, I just worry that because it's so competitive, if people are kind of scanning through applications and you're not ticking those boxes, you know, I want to be able to... I feel confident that if I was sitting in front of somebody, I might have a chance of demonstrating mm. those skills but as, you know, Charlotte was talking about the importance of, of talking to people and, and, and you just have to find the places that are forward thinking where the doors are open and I guess keep keep trying.
0: Yeah. And Meridoc, how do you think you can find places that are forward thinking? What tips would you give to students listening about the sorts of chambers that would be welcoming and supportive of those with caring responsibilities, mature candidates, and those who come with a second career.
1: I, I I actually find that sort of difficult to answer because when I I approached chambers, I didn't really consider whether they would look at me um, and my background as a benefit or a disbenefit. I just applied as to as many sets as I could, and it was a bit surprising. There was I mean I won't name them, but there was a couple of sets that have a very strong background in international law. And I thought my resume would really appeal to them. And um, neither of them were interested. And in fact, I wrote to both of them. And the only two chambers, I wrote to the heads of chambers. And I said, why have I not you know, been interviewed and so forth? And they both cases, they said it was your academics just weren't strong enough. So mm. in that case, I found that I had thought my international work would have could have made up for it, but it, it didn't. So you just have to kind of try and test it and see how it works. I mean, it's also odd about what they look for. There's one, what I would call definitely a superset that I had applied to. It's one of the two that I'd written to and said, you know, why wasn't it gave an interview? But I found out that the same year that I was not interviewed, they interviewed and then gave pupillage to a young man who was a martial arts champion. And uh, I I went to a talk by him actually at the inn, And uh, he was, you know, some well-known martial arts expert and had trained in in the Far East, uh, um, East Asia for a few years. And he said that this was something they, they took into consideration and helped him. And I thought, well, there's not much I can do about that. I'm not a martial arts <laughs> champ, but I have spent 12 years in conflict zones, you know, negotiating with military leaders. So in the end, all you can do is say, look, it, I just didn't have what they wanted. I mean, I, I know it sounds like I'm not providing much assistance, but it's really to me, you've got to test it. You've just got to try it and test it. Sometimes it won't work. You're just going to have to kind of pack your bag and go to the next place. And it's a lot of, it does take time, but you will get there in the end because there are enough, there's enough chambers out there and, and somewhere you'll find that you fit. And someone, as you said, with Wolverhampton, someone will give you a chance. And once you're in, then it's to you to make your career and develop your practice. So it's really kind of the practical steps. If I could just add that the one thing I would suggest, and I know that Georgina's mentioned about advocacy and mooting, if you want to work in crime, if that's your interest. I would suggest that those are the two things you do focus on, mooting and mini-pupilages. And I wouldn't say a lot of mini-pupilages. Really, four or five is enough. That's the maximum. But with mooting, I did a lot of mooting. And I wasn't always successful, especially not at the beginning. But I, I found that was really useful when I went to apply for positions as opposed to maybe other things that people had used in their CV. Crim, crime sets are more interested in, in that mooting experience. And it's not a question of you winning. It's just taking part. So that's something I would, if you have a limited amount of time, that's something I would focus on.
0: That's really helpful, Meridoc. And actually, Georgina, one of the benefits, it's very strange to see um, the national pandemic as having any benefits, but one of the benefits of the national pandemic is that there are far more things now online that can be done in the evenings after the children are in bed. And lots and lots of chambers and groups of students Are organizing mooting experiences for those who wouldn't be able to have them otherwise because of the pandemic, because it's very difficult to get into a Crown Court now. So, one of the things that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in a career in any area of law which requires oral advocacy, so speaking up in court, would be to get onto something like LinkedIn or Twitter and to find these online moots that universities, chambers and groups of students are doing and just take part in those. They don't require a lot of preparation. It might take 45 minutes to an hour one evening for you to do and they usually start somewhere around 8.30 because the barristers who are judging them, people like me, have their own things that they need to do before they can sit down and and take part in these events. So that's a, a really useful way of of getting some mooting experience in. But these are really difficult times, aren't they, for all students, particularly when you don't even get the face-to-face learning or the experience of mixing with other students. How do you keep yourself motivated, Georgina? How do you just keep going when things are are, are so difficult at the moment for students?
3: I don't think I have particular difficulty with motivation i think um at the other end of the scale i have a danger of working too hard and um becoming <laughs> yeah you know slightly unbalanced so it's more a case of keeping a balance and mentally healthy and you know i have a sort of perfectionist tendency as i think is common to many um people at the bar so yeah my my new year goals are more about winding down and getting good sleep as well as maintaining the expectations that I already have for myself.
0: It's very easy isn't it Georgina when you're wrapped up in trying to do the best you can both in terms of study and in terms of being a parent to forget to take care of yourself.
3: Yeah and I think that this is one of the really positive parts of parenting that it does remind you of You know the important things of life, and give you perspective, and mean you have to, you know, stop, put your close down your computer, and play with a three year old at their level. It's incredibly refreshing, and and an important part of of my life at the moment.
0: I speak to lots of students who tell me that they just feel overwhelmed with a combination of trying to parent what is now full time because obviously schools aren't open. And they're trying to educate themselves and their children and often work as well. And they feel very much that they can't stretch themselves sufficiently far to do everything well. But it's very funny because unlike you three, I'm at the other end of the scale in that my children are now grown up. So my youngest son just had his 18th birthday and my eldest child just had his 28th birthday. So as you can see, I've got five sons who were born over a period of 10 years. And over the course of that, as you'll understand, I've had to make decisions. Sometimes those decisions have been that I'm I'm not going to do a piece of work and I'm going to have to return it so I can uh, be with my children for a variety of reasons. And other times I've had to say to my children, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I need to work. And when I got the opportunity recently, I sat them down and apologised for all those times when I hadn't been there, uh, when they had asked me to be. Uh, and they looked at me askance and said to me, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about, mum. We're not bothered about that at all. Uh, but they did have three very serious complaints, Georgina and which I think I ought to share with you in a spirit of um, togetherness. The first was that I bought them all matching cardigans from John Lewis, which apparently (laughs) was a major sin. Secondly, over the years, and they're all boys, I had insisted that they invited every member of their class to school parties because (laughs) as a believer in justice and equality for all, I ensure it happens at home as well as at work. Uh, And there were several little boys in their class who they didn't like and were not happy (laughs) with me and still remain unhappy with me now, even though it's many years later uh, that I insisted that they attended. Uh, And the third thing that I did that they disliked intensely was that if any of them had a tantrum in the supermarket, I would also lie on the floor and kick my leg, which apparently (laughs) is not an appropriate way to behave. But none of them resented me in any way for those times that I just couldn't stretch myself in order to be where they were. And if it helps you, Georgina, I went to the independent bar with a two-year-old, a one-year-old and a baby. So uh, you will see um, already that the demands on time can be incredible, but... Parents have all the skills, it seems to me, to be members of the bar because we are incredible at time management and negotiation.
1: Yeah, negotiation, yes. And storytelling.
0: (laughs) Charlotte, do you think that perhaps instead of seeing a mature age and the fact that you have children as an obstacle to progression, we should perhaps look at it? as in fact a great benefit to progression. It's an opportunity rather than an obstacle. What do you think? Yes, I I think
2: that's definitely true, Um, certainly in the areas that I practice in, uh, crime and then latterly I've been doing more family law. I think doing family cases, particularly private law cases, where people are arguing about their children having having children myself even if I don't share those personal experiences with my clients because often they're not appropriate actually makes me a better lawyer because I can understand in a way that I wouldn't have been able to before I had children some of the issues that parents in my cases are facing and I think we as parents have very good skills in time management and as you've said And also in our, maybe our ability to empathize with other parents who are clients and that we can really use those skills to practice and to be, um, to be better barristers. I do definitely think that there is something in that.
0: And Meridoc, what do you think?
1: I I would like to say it it is a benefit. I mean, obviously the most important thing in my life is, you know, my family, but I don't think, and I, I, you know, be, to be frank, that the bar is fully appreciative um, as much as it should be of, of people with families. I, I do think it is difficult. I'm not saying you can't be successful. I mean, you're obviously an example of it. Um, you know, very sex- successful career and, and five, five children. But it, it is an effort. I don't know that the bar recognizes it as much as it ought to. And I, I'm not sure how to I mean, in my case, the one time I had to take some time out this year, I went to, as I said, my my practice manager. And I said, I, you know, I'm going to have to ease off on my cases for about six months. And they were chambers was able to accommodate me in that regard, which I was really appreciative of. But no, I, it, it's it's really time management. It's a lot you have to do. Um, I, I suppose having children keeps you balanced. I mean, I find working as a criminal barrister. The, the, the good thing is that it's never boring. It's always interesting and it's mm. always a challenge. But the downside, which I didn't expect, is I find it a bit depressing. You're dealing with a lot of people in difficult circumstances. And day after day, I find that does have a little bit of an effect on me. So having a family is sort of a joyous side to everything. So I get to go to the park with my son and sort of put the case out of my mind. Mm. Um, so I, that's a real benefit. And I, but I, then, of course, I try to kind of leave work behind and not bring it bring it home so um
0: it's really important isn't it to have that divide so that when you're working you focus on your work and when you're with your children you focus on being a a mum or a dad or a playmate sometimes as you have to be in covid times it's just ensuring that you're in the moment a lot of the time isn't it Mm. yes it's hard (laughs) Georgina What do you think we could do as a profession to be more welcoming to parents, those with caring responsibilities and those coming to the bar slightly later in life? How could we make you feel more welcome?
3: I think that having positive role models and seeing people managing parenting responsibilities is really important. But one of the things um, so I work for a team of in-house barristers at Brown Jacobson, and one of the things I really appreciate is that the um, head of the team is a parent, and she works four days a week, and you know, and progresses, and is you know a partner, and that's really affirming to see people succeeding whilst having flexible um, work patterns. Mm. One of the things that I have at the back of my mind, but feels Like it would be a very daring question is if I ever, and hopefully I will have pupillage interviews, you know, would it ever be possible to do one four days a week? You know, have some flexibility. You know, I'd like to be able to, you know, my child will be at at school around that time and I'd like to be able to sometimes be able to take her to school. So, you know, witnessing people already doing it and having opportunities to have some sort of flexibility in your your. Working life, that would be the dream, really.
0: And also, I think it's important for us to just remember and to point out to students here that being a barrister doesn't necessarily mean being a self employed member of the bar in a set of chambers. There are all types of uh, careers as a barrister that you can do, you can work for the government legal service the Crown Prosecution Service, for local councils, for firms of solicitors, such as the one that you work for, Georgina. And all of those things, all of those employed roles, can also promote a great deal of flexibility. But I think the point you made there, which is a really important point, is one of visibility. Being able to see people who have been mature students Who've had caring or parental responsibilities and who've made a successful career, it is quite a great benefit for someone who's starting off, isn't it?
3: Yes, absolutely. It's very important.
0: Could could I just add to that as well? Because
2: I think it's really important, and it's something I didn't realise before I became a barrister was that you can be at the self-employed bar in chambers and still do secondments to places like the CPS or the Serious Fraud Office. So I had my son um, in April 2019, went back to work about six months later, and I worked three days a week at the Serious Fraud Office. And knowing that I wanted another child, I basically have done that with some casework as well, um, from then until I went till my daughter was born this December. So it's really worth people knowing that you, can, can, you, you can't you can become employed, you still remain self-employed, but you can still do secondments that allow maybe a more nine-to-five, but still allow you to work and still allow you to get relevant experience. And I think that's something that people should know that they have the option to do.
0: It's a really great point, Charlotte, and it's vital, isn't it, that we keep at the bar are young mothers and fathers who may, for those few years where parenting is so intense, find it extremely difficult uh, to manage a full-time practice. One of the Mm. other things that certainly a number of the parents in the chambers that I'm fortunate enough to be a member of do is they don't work in the summer and they don't work in the school holidays. So it's perfectly possible as a member of the independent bar to block out those periods of time in your diary. And people do it every year for as many years as they want to spend the summer with their children. And that's something I think for for people to look forward to a a great deal. The other thing I suppose we could do uh, to encourage wider representation at the bar is to just make sure that we're not overburdened over the course of an evening with work that's given to us for the following day, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) That's particularly difficult in your first few years because often the things you get are at the last minute. Um, Meridoc, did you find that you got lots of last-minute returns when you first started?
1: Yes, I did, and I have an interesting story about that, actually. I should say that I was at four chambers I did my pupillage at one chambers, and as soon as I was signed off, I left the next day. (laughs) Um, I won't say which chambers, but I didn't really uh, take to it. I then went to another chambers on a third six, and I really liked that chambers. And after a year, they they didn't take me on. I then went to a third chambers. I didn't really fit. After five months, I left. And then I finally went to Garden Court, uh, and they took me on after six months, but the, 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 what was interesting to me was that the second chambers that I was at for a year when I did my first third six, and I was really interested, I, it's one of the hardest I've ever worked. The clerks completely overloaded me with work. I would do, you know, I was, at one point I was doing two magistrates court trials at the same time in Highbury, and I was actually literally going from one court to the next. It was ridiculous. Um, and I would do, you know, five, six matters a day. And at the end of it, the clerks said, well, you are our first choice you know, we're recommending you to the committee to be taken on. And I wasn't. And what I noticed is that the other person who was taken on, and only one person was, um, he didn't work as hard as I did, but he made sure that what he did was recognized. Mm. And people, it's more senior in chambers, he developed relations with and everything else. Mm. So I realized that working hard isn't always the answer. No, So it's working smart, isn't it? Yes. And It's better to do a little bit less cases. Sometimes you have to draw the line with the clerks, but make sure you do it well. And you get credit for what you've done. And I just decided to change my approach. And, you know, later on, I I didn't work as hard, but I made sure that I paid more attention to each case I had. And I think it paid off. So it's, as you say, working smarter, not necessarily harder.
0: That's a really great example of where things can go horribly wrong, isn't it? When you are trying to please your clerks and they can be very persuasive, especially when you're trying to get taken on.
1: Yes. Um, yeah.
0: They can tell you how much more likely it's going to be if only you would do this extra case and be in what, what feels like several places at once all of the time. But working smart is so important, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of a. Support network, are there any organisations, Charlotte, that you would suggest that. Those looking for a career at the bar who've perhaps come to the bar later in life or have parenting responsibilities might want to look at to join to get some support and encouragement. To be honest, no.
2: <laughs> I'd be really interested to know what they are myself. <laughs> um, I know the Bar Council um, did do a mentoring scheme um, for Mothers return or parents returning to practice
0: after parental leave, but I don't think that's running anymore. There is Women in Criminal Law. Women in Criminal Law is a, an organisation which does what it says on the tin and they do have mentoring and a strong support network. And there is also an organisation called Women in Family Law, which does precisely the same thing. There's the Association of Women Barristers. And there is the education department at Gray's Inn, which I have to say, over the years that I kept producing children, were extremely helpful and supportive to me. Meridoc, do you, are you a member of any organisation which you think would be of assistance to any students?
1: I'm sort of of the same mind of Charlotte. If there was somebody, I'd, I'd like to know who they are. But... Um... I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on a Grayson podcast, but in this entire process, since I you know, landed in the UK at the beginning of 2013 and decided I was going to be a barrister, the only part of it that has really been helpful throughout has been the education department. They've been great. I mm. have I went to them for a mentor. They sent me to the Bailey to meet a senior counsel who you know, took me for lunch, explained to me sort of what direction I should be going in. Um, I had difficulties at one point with the uh, BTCP provider who was some administrative difficulties. I went to the education department, they helped me with that. They've really been supportive, I have to say fantastic throughout the process. And my chambers, now I'm a tenant, have been fairly helpful. But otherwise, I there's sort of a lack of support, I think, for, for people, mm. for parents anyhow. Um, I, I don't know of any organizations other than the education department.
2: Yeah, I don't think that, well, we're probably a testament, Meridoc, if neither of us know to the fact that barristers we probably don't look to start with and maybe things aren't as well publicised as mm. they need to be. Mm. Um, I'm now going to look up those organisations you mentioned, Mary, because I'm glad certainly I need some help when I return to practice that. I, it would be helpful for me to have that support. So, yeah, I would say um, once you're a barrister, though, in chambers, my Chambers has got quite a lot of, we call ourselves the juniors with juniors, um, we have a WhatsApp group and we have kind of peer support um, within Chambers for other for, for junior barristers with children. So certainly once you get to Chambers, some Chambers are very good at supporting parents.
0: Georgina, do you belong to any associations as a student that help you because you're a, a student with a young family and because you are um, coming to this as a second career? Um, nothing formal, but you make your networks.
3: The distance learning, GDL group at Nottingham Trent University is actually really good. Lots mm. of parents, and we have a WhatsApp group, and we've you know been messaging each other about you know our situations with the current lockdown and so on. So that's important. And my team at Brown Jacobson you know, people have children and are generally supportive, but, you know, they're not formal institutions as such. No. Oh, I also did attend a, um, a talk by a group called Themis. I think it's relatively small, but they they ha- held a similar talk about, they called it pandemic parenting. and um, So that's T-H-E-M-I-S, which was useful to me.
0: That's an interesting course. Well, it, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I only really know about the organisations for for women, mostly because I'm either a member of them or, or running some part of them. But there's a real need, I think, isn't there, for just a place that people can go to to get information, support and reassurance when they are going as a mature student, firstly, and then separately when they are going to the bar, uh, with a, a young family, or they have a young family at the bar. I know from um, the fact that we all have the great benefit of being members of Grey's Inn, which I always think is the, is the equivalent, or it's always felt to me like a family that we can always go there for help. But lots of students, of course, haven't joined an inn by the time that they are uh, looking for pupillage. It isn't something that they've considered unless they've obtained scholarships, but I feel quite inspired by the conversation this evening to see whether we and others such as us can do something uh, to help the students of the future, hopefully to make it a little bit easier of a journey than the one we've had. I'd like you all, if you would, before we leave this evening, to just give the students listening to this podcast one or two lines of advice or one or two bits of encouragement if you can about just carrying on, even despite all these difficult times. And that it's okay to be a mature student and it's okay to be a parent and you can make it. Meridoc, what would you say?
1: Just everything that you said, you know, it is okay to be a mature student and a parent and and, and somebody with a disability, if if that's I know there's some people have come to the bar with both evident and non-evident disabilities and whatever it might be, um, you have a place in the bar. And in fact, I think it's important to remind everybody that you have a right to be counsel. You are representing society and the bar should be representative of the society that they're representing. So I think it's really important that people keep that in mind. Um, It shouldn't any longer be an elitist sort of profession. And I think you have to work to dismantle that. Um, And you will make it, you have to persevere. I think. You also have to do what works best for you so for me i have to do exercise and i go for a run every now and then or i go for a bike ride i took three days off a month ago to do a bit of um, a tour on my bike for three days because i just felt i needed a bit of a break so whatever it is that works for you figure out what that is and, and keep at it so my other half, she has to you know, speak with her friends. She's Italian. She must speak with her Italian friends in Italian every now and then. It's very important to her. Um, and for me, I have to do sports. So I would suggest whatever it is that keeps you on track, don't let that go. So I met a couple of people who used to do very active in sports, and I noticed that they don't do that anymore. And I, I don't think that's healthy. I think you must keep, out, keep some time for yourself. That's the one piece of advice. And the, the other one is if you have a family, have an honest conversation with your other half. And my other half didn't really fully understand what a barrister was. So I took her to dinner with a lot of barristers. And she said it's one of the worst evenings she's ever had. But, <laughs> <laughs> but she did say that after having yeah. to spend an evening with them, she understands the profession I'm in. And she's much more sympathetic and, um, you know, understands when I say I need time. So, you know, you have my other half works in medicine, on so um, the medical profession. So you have to understand if someone can't relate to what you're doing, you know, you're going to have to maybe – make an effort. And, and you know, that, so that's, those would be my two, two pieces of advice.
0: Thank you so much, Meredith. They are both brilliant. Charlotte, what would you say?
2: I'd say have a really honest reflection on yourself. So have a really honest reflection on what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and then really hone in on your strengths and improving those. Be realistic about what you can achieve and how you can improve your CV. Don't feel that you have to follow the cookie cutter mould of getting pupillage and getting to the bar. Have courage and have conviction that the path that you have taken was the right path for you, however you've come to the bar or however you want to come to the bar. And really draw on your experiences because as someone who sat on interview panels for pupils for our chambers, what we want to hear is what makes you special, what makes you uh, the best candidate for our pupilage, And if you really believe in the experiences that you've had, in the way forward that you want to take, that will shine through. So really just be confident in your background. I think that's the most important thing. It will come across in an interview and it will mean that you will succeed. And if you have children or if you want to have children, don't feel that they stand in the way of you succeeding at the bar. Undoubtedly, yes, Uh, they add challenges. But as we've all said, they also bring great joy to our lives. And I think they often provide that much needed counterweight to a difficult day in court or a difficult uh, result uh, with a client. And they Enrich our lives, um, which is which is so important, and I think ultimately they help us appreciate our careers more as well. And if you have kids, I always try and remind myself that I am a role model to them as a woman at the bar, um, and I hope one day that they look up to me and that they are proud of what I've done, and that their complaints are equally um, limited to me lying <laughs> on the floor in the supermarket still buying them. <laughs> dodgy cardigans i mean i have made some already heinous outfit choices for them <laughs> over the christmas break um so i'm sure they will come back to haul me <laughs> but, oh. yeah
0: charlotte that's so wonderful thank you so much and um i look forward in a few years to you telling me what your heinous errors were <laughs> georgina what would you say to the people listening
3: i think anything i say is advice to myself as well as advice to any other students Um, but something that I'm trying to dare to believe is that contrary to you know the feeling the need to be desperate to get any pupillage whatsoever I think it's probably important to realize that the process of applying is also about you finding the right one for you you know and you don't really know until you meet the people so you probably have to put lots of applications out there but you have to ask the right questions and you do have the right to interview the chambers or, you know, an employed pupillage panel as well, I suppose.
2: Definitely. You only need one. (laughs) You do. You You only need need one. And remember, you only need
0: one offer. That's all I had was one offer. That's all you need. That's true. And Charlotte's entirely right, because at the end of the day, you just need one chance to shine. And it doesn't make any difference where you start. What matters is that you do start. And and some people have a very convoluted route to it. They can go in house for a while. Um, I went into the Crown Prosecution Service for six years and then I went to the uh, bar, went to a set of chambers. So um, it doesn't really matter where you start. What matters is that you start. Yes. And I found the Crown Prosecution Service to be a wonderful uh, learning experience and a very supportive place to work so to conclude the session for this evening i'd just like to give you my piece of advice if you're listening in uh, about what i would say that you should keep as your mantra in these really tricky times so that you keep your you keep your sense of humor and it's this you might see photographs of beautiful women with flowing locks of hair immaculately dressed, um, holding onto the arms of immaculately dressed and immaculately behaved children who are what you might describe as power people right at the top of their game. Um, if it helps you, that was absolutely not me. And I'm not a great believer in the idea that you can have it all. I think what you can do is the best that you can. But the best that you can is just so good. It's often amazing. If you are managing to hold down a job, uh, to work full time or part time and to study and to go through all the stresses of pupillage uh, and getting a job, you're a winner and you're a success. And if you're looking at getting there, it's really useful to just listen to podcasts like this and find ordinary people who have succeeded. And I think the difference between those of us who've succeeded and those of us who haven't is often stubbornness, just keep going. And, and that's what I'd say to you, keep going, keep believing in yourself, keep believing in your ability. And those of us on the panel this evening are going to look forward to seeing you uh, in Gray's Inn, at an event in the future uh, where we can introduce ourselves to you and you can tell us how you kept going in this pandemic. So the very best of luck to you all. And I hope you have a very lovely evening. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
3: Thanks very much.
1: Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.